Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Here it is, everybody, the final installment of The False Dichotomy with my friend and colleague, Lisa Mullinax, Certified Dog Behavior Consultant. I'm sure this is not the last you will hear from me on this topic, but this is the last of my conversation with Lisa. Enjoy. So, big question time. Because <laughs> we haven't talked about anything big or hard so far. Nothing. <laughs> big, no, this is big, all an easy ice easy, cream cone. Easy. Yeah. Uh, easy ice cream. This is the ice cream cone <laughs> episode of Cog Dog Radio. Um, can aversive tools or training methods, or I'm going to lump in there punishment routes, be a part of a humane training plan? And if so, when? Right. So first and question, can, can it be part of a humane training plan? So this is, this is the piece when we started, you know, started talking about how to do this episode, we're trying really hard not to give our opinions. What we really want is for people to be asking. I know that I have failed miserably. <laughs> oh, I have too. Okay. My opinion is that I have failed miserably. Um, <laughs> Are we, are we dog trainers, even if we don't have opinions? Um, no, no, we're not. But we want people to be asking themselves these questions as opposed to us giving the answers. Yes. First off, like we're, before I we're give my opinion. I went. <laughs> yeah, we're answering them because we're talking. But we're, we want yes. you to answer this for yourself. It just, right. just wouldn't be a great podcast if we just only asked. Right. I think. Um. And it also wouldn't be a good podcast if we only told. Correct. Right? So that's why we're asking. Because that's what's happening in these discussions is people are telling mm-hmm. each other. So can aversive tools or training methods be part of a humane training plan? Um, if so, when? Um, you know, I think, I think if we're looking at, you know, we talk about science-based training, we, we know that punishment is part of the science, right? Um, as is negative reinforcement, which as a lot of times averse, aversive tools lean heavily on. Right. Or, yeah. You know what I meant? Right. So, uh, you know, I'm going to start with my opinion here and I would say, yes, they can be part of a humane training plan. Agree. If, if so, even though I will say that and I, I think, you know, you would say this as well, that example I gave earlier in the episode of one of the last times I used aversives, I mean, that was maybe more than 15 years ago um, when I used the example of the dog coming yeah. out of the gate. Um, I, and here's- I think what's important is that you and I are both saying yes, right. while, while not leaning heavily on this at all. And in fact, utilizing these things rarely, extremely rarely, you're talking over 10 years ago. Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons, and here's why I feel that even though that's not how I would do it now, because I can, 
I can look at that problem and come up with a, a way to do that without the aversive um, methods that I used. The reason that was still part of a humane training plan was because how we constructed it, it, it was not, it was attached solely to the behavior and the specific environment, not to, not to any of us. It, it, it wasn't anything that could be associated with the owners, associated with me as the visitor to the home. It also was not reliant on the dog needing to have any a piece of equipment for the rest of its life. It was very, very specific to the environment. And it was something that was used in such a limited way. If I remember right, I think we only repeated the use in one, in one session. I think we only did it three or four times before we started to see a change in behavior. And then we're able to switch to reinforcement pretty quickly. Now, is that what I would choose now? No. Do I think that that was given, given the knowledge I had, and even back then, the knowledge we had mm-hmm. of reinforcement back Collectively. then, mm-hmm. I do think that compared to other things that I did back then, that I would look at and say, no, that was not humane. I think in that situation, I do think that was part of a humane training plan for that dog, given the situation and given, given the tools and knowledge that we had at the time. And I think what's important here is that having a science-based mindset, being an evidence-based type of trainer means that sweeping generalizations are, they're probably going to be wrong. So saying no aversive tools can't be part of a humane training plan, probably wrong because of the word can't. Right. What I could say is rarely, what I could say is sometimes, and that might be true for me in my work and in my process. I think that what's important here is again, I'm just such a broken record, welfare and positive reinforcement. If we are leaning heavily on both of those things and we find that the application, the manipulation of an aversive stimulus is going to further our goals while still holding welfare as a core tenant. And I would like to say that we have probably reached out and asked our cabinet as well, then of course it can be part of a humane training plan. It has been for me and, you know, might be in the future. And there are certainly are trainers who reach for these things much sooner than I do, who are still holding welfare really high on their list and who are still leaning on positive reinforcement. Right. What might make them reach for that more often than I do is because it's, it's how they know. It's how they understand it. It's what they do. It's probably what their cabinet knows as well. Just like I lean heavily on some things that, you know, like I, I use stations a lot. So I use platforms a lot for a lot of different things. That's what led me to that solution for the slick floors. Right. If you're not a person who uses platforms much at all, because a lot of R plus trainers don't, they're like, it's a relatively new thing for R plus trainers to lean heavily on then you might not have thought of that. If your first line of defense tends to be more of a desensitization counter conditioning route, you're going to look at it totally differently than the way that I looked at it. Right. Methodology does not make you good or bad. It's application. And that's true here also. 
I agree. I agree. And I would say that in my discussions, and I'm sure in your discussions, when we talk about trainers who may implement aversive tools as part of a training plan, absolutely agree that any trainer who relies on aversives to get or suppress all behaviors are not humane. They're not meeting the criteria because they will have affected natural behaviors that are have nothing to do with the behavior that we're after. And they're not considering welfare. I received some feedback on part one as I expected to. And something that is not sitting well with a lot of the listeners who are, who consider themselves force-free is my suggestion that a person who might use an aversive tool could also still be effective and humane and could also still understand body language and things like that. If they don't, then they're not fitting into this good, effective trainer kind of category. And as we've said, if there is a dichotomy, it is people who are doing a good job and people who are not. It's not about people who are using tools and people who are not, or people who are forced free or people who are balanced. It's about people who are doing a service to their clients and the dogs and people who are not. And if they're not, then they're not. <laughs> if they're not considering right. welfare, they're not looking at body language. If they're not considering all these things, then I'm not considering them these high quality trainers, regardless of what it is they're doing, regardless of if it's a clicker or a remote that they're holding. So we hear and, this. And lot. I think that's huge. I think that is the true dichotomy. Yeah. That will always exist as long as our industry is as just hodgepodge as it is like there's just there isn't a clear path to education there isn't a clear path into the industry there is no licensing there is no true governing body and there is no there's no education path either like trade or academic wise and i am not claiming to know the answers there no and honestly this this also that dichotomy exists in other professions that do have licensing and do have governing bodies I don't know how many, I've had terrible therapists and I've had great ones and they yes. went to, they had the same school. They had to pass the same test. Yeah. Have the same license. So it exists everywhere. Yes. We hear sometimes that one of the arguments against the banning of tools is that the tool might've saved a life. And is it okay with you like to ban e-collars if an e-collar saves a dog life. So can the manipulation of aversive stimuli be life-saving? This is an interesting question. Can it be? It is interesting. And I, I think it is something, this is, this is one of those exact questions where we can't, we can't just make a blanket statement that yes or no. Right. Sweeping generalizations are probably wrong. I will say that there are cases that I worked with that I was very close to um, clients' Mm -hmm. dogs that, you know, this is why I say philosophically, I am not opposed to the use of aversives because if there was a way that an aversive could have saved one of these dogs' lives, I absolutely would have gone that route. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact is that people who are highly skilled in the use of aversives, you know, as well as, as what 
the science does tell us is that in these cases, aversives would not have saved that dog's life. Right, because we're all generally going to be on a similar page. If we're being high quality, we're being effective. Right. It's, I can't think of a case in which like the suppression of an aggressive behavior, for instance, was life-saving. Right. Although I think that there are people who would argue with me about that. So, and if you were here and I, I would sit down with you, if you're listening to this and you would argue with me, I would be happy to hear you out. However, the skilled application of an aversive stimulus in some cases, like car chasing, yes, could be life-saving. That's not something that's in my toolbox. That's not something I've ever done. I've solved car chasing other ways. And I have a pretty good track record on it. However, I also helped a close friend who is also a professional dog trainer make the decision to utilize um, an electronic collar on her dog in regards to car chasing specifically. She and I, you know, because again, this is what's so important is that if I was just closed to having that conversation, she and I wouldn't have had that conversation. Right. And I heard her out. I asked her questions. I understand the dog's foundation training really well. So I know that the dog is well-trained and I know that the dog has a really strong, solid history of positive reinforcement with this person. And then, and I also knew that she had help who wasn't me to use the e-collar. Somebody who's very skilled and knows what they're doing. And this dog experienced the electric stimulation. I believe it's twice, could have been three times at a low level because she has a big foundation of positive reinforcement. She has a good recall. And the one little missing link got put in there and she doesn't chase cars. Right. And I'm really, I'm happy with that outcome for my friend. I am not sure that I would have chosen that for my personal dog because I haven't lived that exact circumstance, but it was the right choice for her. And this is where I keep coming back to, can I now judge my friend as not being as good of a trainer as somebody who could have got that done without that e-collar? Like, is that smart of me to do? No, because- What what would that buy me? Right. And we're talking about an individual case with many different variables than a lot of us have ever lived with or experienced. Even in, you know, 23 years of working with clients, I have not come up on a problem like that. So if I were to jump in and argue that there was something else that could have been done, Right. That would Truly, not have been if you did honest... as Lisa, as Lisa, my friend, I would say, please let me have it. What, what, what is yes. this? Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's, that's what, it, again, this dichotomy hurts us all because if I placed yes. myself on one side of the dichotomy now and placed my friend on another side of the dichotomy now, the really amazing collaborations that we've been able to have are over. Right. And now the growth of both of us through that relationship is over. 
And I, you know, I gotta tell you, I still place her closer to me than she is to somebody who uses e-collars on every dog every day in her, in her choices. Right. So it's, can it save a dog's life? We just can't make a blanket blanket statement. I don't think it's a good argument for the use of aversive tools to say that they save lives. And I also don't think it's an argument against to say that they don't like, I don't, I don't think it's a relevant question because I agree things are, it's way too complicated in that. So it's, I don't think it's relevant. Right. I I agree. And I don't think it should come into these arguments, these back and forth arguments. You know, what we can say is that quality training saves lives. hundred percent. That's what we'll say. Yeah. Quality dog training saves lives. Yes. So (laughs) I think that it's important that we acknowledge these nuances when it comes to aversives, because if we don't, we risk losing credibility with our clients who may have different experiences. You know, if their last three dogs were trained with aversive tools and were happy, easygoing, you know, all those indicators of a good quality of life and welfare, and that was their experience. And we come in and say, no, you can't, you can't do this because it's going to cause problems. It's going to cause aggression and it's going to cause fearful behavior. We lose credibility. And I don't know about you, but I have seen it in client size when I have started down that path, you know, way back when, and you see the, the smirk or the, you know, you, you just lose that, that confidence and that credibility and everything you try to teach them after that is going to be tainted. And it's like any professional who says something to you that is in direct opposition to what you know to be true. Yes. You instantly lose credibility in any of the other stuff that they're saying. Yes, absolutely. And if we're talking to other professionals and we are negating their experience, slamming a door, slamming a door on that relationship. And let me tell you how many times I did that. For sure. I was such a jerk. Yes. And I can also talk about the times that I did not do that, Mm. that I did, they did not alienate them, that I maintained my credibility. And by doing that, I was able to open a dialogue with that trainer who I will tell you did not fit this criteria we're talking about for good training. Yeah. And by having conversations and, and accepting nuances and being able to have open conversations, the, there were two or three trainers and specifically that I can remember that started going to conferences. I was able to share like, Hey, this person's coming to town. You might find this really interesting. And because I had not lost credibility in their eyes, they were like, wow, thank you for sharing. I will. Yeah. In order for everybody to grow, those doors need to stay open. Yes. And we don't just keep them open so that we can like you know, this is, you know, it gets a little bit like everybody's welcome at our church. Uh, (laughs) That's what it starts to feel like a little bit. Although, you know, once you're inside, we'll tell you how bad of a person you are. Um, (laughs) 
that's not what this is. That's not what I'm no. interested in. It's no, it's literally elevating the entire industry. Yes. All the time rather and having that be the goal rather than on Wednesdays, we wear pink and you can't sit with us. Like it's, <laughs> I don't want it to be like that. <laughs> we're planting seeds and we can't do that if we've created conditions inhospitable to those seeds yeah. being able to grow. And, and we're getting feedback on, you know, I, we're getting feedback on our things too. Like it, it can be, you know, my open-mindedness now about different approaches to training didn't just come from me, like waking up one day and realizing I was being a jerk. Right. No. And we, and I we talked about that in the previous episode, right? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a process and it's a slow process. Yeah, it is. And it's okay for it to be slow. We just avoiding slamming doors in anybody's face is probably wise. Yes. Yes. So can non-aversive tools or the manipulation of appetitive stimuli can that be harmful? Can R plus types of methods or quote unquote force-free methods be harmful? Again, this is a question we all need to ask ourselves when we are, whether it's working with our own dogs, whether it's working with clients' dogs. And I think this, this one comes up a lot for me when, when we're looking at the training recipes that are passed among trainers mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, a big part of our, of the positive training community is this trainer has presented this way of working with this behavior. And so you should apply that. That is the accepted route. I have certainly seen instances where, yes, that has been harmful. Um, one way, and you, you kind of mentioned this when you're talking about the, the, um, slick floors, we certainly see this when it comes to dogs with stranger directed fear or aggression. And, you know, the non-aversive approach has for so long been, well, have the stranger give the dog food, Mm. change the association, counter conditioning, right? right? That is the non-aversive way to do that. And I've seen too many cases now where either the dog was lured closer to the person for the food, they eat the food. Now, suddenly they're way closer than they're comfortable with and the food is gone. And then a bite happens. Now we're in trouble. Yep. Right. Or the conditioning that we were hoping for that the dog starts to associate strangers with good things has happened. So the dog approaches strangers with anticipatory body language, mm-hmm. right? They are, they're going up and like, yay, it's a stranger and they're going to have food for me. The stranger doesn't know that dog's history, but a All complex understanding like, of yes. reinforcement was not involved here with this trainer. And so they right. didn't understand that the dog was seeking food, not social interaction. Right. And they look and social unquote, friendly. Still created right? a problem. Yeah. Yes. Yep. All of that based in science, right? All of mm-hmm. that non-aversive. And I've seen it lead to bites in more than in multiple occasions. 
one of them. Yes, to me. and so, <laughs> so what we yeah, one of one time myself. Um, yeah. And so it's basically it comes. It's the same as any of our other questions about maybe aversive tool usage. It's application really matters. Yes. Always considering welfare as a core tenant matters. The there's potential harm of actual physical harm of a dog hurting a person because right. maybe enough control was not put under the dog. Like the dog is off leash and eating food from the person's hand or, you know, on a back clip harness on a long line, eating food from the person's hand. We don't have enough control over this animal to prevent problems from happening, et cetera, et cetera. Like for me, poor application of anything you're doing can and will be harmful. And I think when we, when these arguments are happening and we're comparing aversive versus non-aversive, right? That we're only looking at one type of harm. Yeah. That, right, aversive tools are going to cause this harm and non-aversive tools won't. So therefore non-aversive is not harmful. Mm. And we need to expand that definition of harm because like you said, it's, it's the animal's welfare. If, if that non-aversive method leads to the dog causing harm to someone else, that is a welfare issue. Happy dogs don't bite, right? Yeah. That is my oversimplification of that. Yeah. But the, the animal's welfare in that moment was jeopardized. And then long-term could be jeopardized because, you know, a client that had been seeing progress and then the dog still bit, well, either that didn't work or they're going to give up on the dog or, right, there are going to be things that impact the, the, the dog's long-term welfare. I think another thing that you and I have, have discussed probably at length <laughs> in the past is that non-aversive methods can also sometimes include ignoring unwanted behavior. Oh, how often do you hear it? Ignore the bad and reward the good. Yep. Yes. So tired. When you and I are like a bottle of rosé in, um, <laughs> we can get a little spicy about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's be real, Sarah. We don't need the rosé to get spicy about no, this. No, it just makes it more fun. <laughs> you know, and and my dog Simon is a perfect example of, you know, ignoring. I think as dog trainers, we are told, right, withhold attention for a dog that is barking, jumping, right? I see it. I would see it in the shelters. This is commonly used in shelters to oh, ignore. Breaks my heart. Breaks yes. my heart when you think about what we talked about before, which is the yes. um, welfare of these dogs being compromised. And they're jumping all over you because they're desperate for yes. connection. Yes. They're deprived of social interaction. They're literally deprived. And this is, we're not shitting on shelters, by the way. This is not, not what no, we're no, trying no. to do. Lisa, especially Lisa is like a, I would consider you a leader in the field of shelter behavior. Like that's not, okay. it's, it, we're just talking okay. about the reality. Yes. We're talking about even the, the best shelter in the world cannot meet a dog's emotional needs. Right. 
And so what we see, especially in the shelter as the example is when a person withholds that social interaction, Mm -hmm. the dog then escalates because their needs are not being met. And what we, the huge, huge problem in shelters is hard mouthing, mouthing, grabbing behavior. The dog starts, you know, the, the handler is ignoring the jumping. And then the dog grabs onto their arm. Maybe they initially were going for a shirt sleeve or a, you know, a jacket sleeve and they start pulling on it and they're about to rip it. And so immediately the person stops ignoring. Yeah. They react to the dog. Now is the dog learning that the thing that they want the most, that social interaction can only be achieved by grabbing clothes. And then it starts to escalate more and more. And I have seen dogs that have broken skin and left deep, deep bruises and can end up being euthanized because of this, because this non-aversive approach what we have defined as non-aversive approach is actually quite aversive to the dog and leads to a reduction in welfare. And again, this is not understanding all the nuance of reinforcement. This is a lack of that understanding again. And of course, lack of consideration for welfare. And this goes for any dog that's doing any behavior the behavior has the function. The behavior has a desired outcome. The The behavior is being done because it has worked for this dog to right. get a need met, to get a thing it wants. And not respecting that is what ignoring it looks like to me. Yeah. So, you know, I always come back to, I have an analogy that I use frequently, which is that when you put your hand under a faucet and water does not come out, that is like ignoring behavior. Okay. So when my desired outcome by waving my hand under the faucet is for water to come out. And when water simply doesn't come out, we all know what that feels like and it doesn't feel good. And also if that's the only thing that happens, water is not coming out. It's the only sink or other people are using the other sinks or there's no, like, I'm like, I need to wash my hands. I just got off an airplane. Like this is also in the time of COVID, we're all very excited about washing our hands. Like it's, it's a socially appropriate time to wash my hands. Like I need to wash my hands. Water's not coming out. That will not do anything to change my behavior. If you would like me to change my behavior, like let's say you want me to use the hand sanitizer on the wall, or you want me to like, you want me to do something else. And therefore there's no water coming out. You aren't going to help me do the other thing. You're just going to piss me off. I'm going to wave my hands faster. I'm going to like kick something. I'm going to cuss. I'm going to frantically wave my hands under all of the faucets. Like I, this is not good. Right. There are other ways that you could shape me to choose other behaviors. There are other ways that would consider what the function of that original behavior is. Because if for some reason you just don't want me to wash my hands, we're going to have to find a compromise. Right. And that's true with our dogs. If I don't want you to jump all over me and mouth me when I walk in your kennel, but you need my attention. Yes. We're going to have to find a compromise. Right. And me, me ignoring your behavior is not any kinder than me correcting your behavior. Right. Right. So me 
doing something to you to make you stop, which by the way, that would be kind of like if hot oil came out of the faucet. <laughs> yes. That sucks, um, but it sucks in a totally different way. And neither of them respect that I have a need here that's not being met. And I have photos from a shelter showing the result of that. Of wait, a hot which, oil? <laughs> yeah, it's hot oil. The hot oil in that the instance hot oil being, yes, <laughs> being a training collar that was applied to the dog to stop it. And the photos that were sent to me was that training collar on the ground that was covered in blood after oh, the God. dog escalated to the point that they severely attacked the person who applied that. Right. Because if you go back to the feelings and the emotions that you would have if the hot oil happened. Yes. Yes. It's going to cause big behavioral outcomes. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And yes. And if you are Ah. desperate for that water and what comes out. We're introducing desperation here. That is, which is what I was trying to demonstrate in that I just got off a plane. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Scenario. But so coming back to the, the core question we're trying to answer here, yes. can non-aversive tools be harmful? Yeah. The water not coming out is harmful. Yes. You have to give me other routes. So you have to give me ways to go. I would say that ignoring is not a kind or humane thing to do. No, no. I was able to develop uh, protocols for these dogs that were highly effective and that could be repeated that did not involve ignoring, it involved meeting the animal's needs while keeping people safe. We need to look beyond like the recipes, right? Right. These recipes are not, are not considering the individual. They are like a map that could get you there. Yeah. But aren't gonna help you if the road's closed. (laughs) Exactly. There it's, it's one map. It's a map of the one path. There are no other paths on the map and there's no consideration for other things that might happen. And also, of course, you know, ignoring just like everything else. If I'm trying to ignore bad stuff, I do have to be rewarding the good stuff. Right. And if I am not again, highly, highly skilled in the application of positive reinforcement, I am not rewarding the good stuff well enough. And so then the ignoring is bigger and louder than the rewarding yes. of the good. So if yes. we go to the faucet, the water not turning on, if the water not turning on is paired with, there's a sink over there that's like really nice and even has really nice smelling soaps. And like, <laughs> it'll there's like a speaker and it's gonna immediately connect to my iTunes that I was already listening to. And like, it's like, I've made this other sink very, very attractive. And also the water in this sink doesn't work. Right. Your goal is for me to use the other sink. Like, boom, you got it. It's happening. Yes. Dog training has to look like that. It can't just look like the water in this sink doesn't work. Right. And, and when we teach, especially teach new, whether it's a pet owner, a shelter volunteer, people who are not as experienced and we try to teach this approach. And I know certainly as a, as a younger trainer, maybe I was effective at ignoring certain behaviors, but wasn't 
recognizing the reinforcement that I was bringing in when I was, when I was reinforcing what I was reinforcing in a way that I could then communicate to a client. And all I'm saying to a client is you need to ignore him when he does that. (laughs) Right. Right. That's not going to be effective for them. And so I have seen how that Mm -hmm. was doing harm. I think the other harm that we need to acknowledge is that if what we are telling people to do either isn't effective or our clients see a either a resurgence of the problem behavior or new behaviors pop up as a result of whether it's that frustration, right? Maybe they were jumping, but now they start clasping and mounting the leg. We are going to damage that client's confidence in the training we're trying to teach them in the effectiveness of reinforcement-based training. If we damage their confidence, they're not going to have us back. They're not going to schedule any more appointments. So now it's doing harm to our, (laughs) to our income, which also harms Mm -hmm. our ability to help more people. But Think of how many of those people then go on to talk to their family, to their friends who say, hey, you had that trainer coming over this weekend. You know, how'd it go? And now you've got them telling multiple people, you know what, that positive training stuff, that does not work. Or even just that dog training stuff, like even just- Dog this training, dog can't learn just right. Yeah. Or, yeah. This dog is, must have a problem because this person has a business, like anything we do to harm the consumer confidence in our industry is bad. Yes. No matter how you do that harm, I don't care how you do, you're doing the harm. It's a problem. Yeah. Um, if you're doing it with ignore the bad and reward the good, you're going to drive them potentially to the use of aversives that might not even be necessary in this case. If right. you are damaging the confidence by using aversives that affect behaviors that you weren't looking to affect and their dog is now walking around like a zombie, that's a problem too. Like we cannot right. risk causing harm to their confidence in our industry. It's actually yes. amazing to me. Sometimes I'll get people who've worked with like six or seven other people before. And I'm oh like amazed yeah. that they kept trying Lisa. Me too. If I had to go to six or seven mechanics to get my whatever fixed in my car, I would just be like, well, I guess I can just live with it. Or by the second, like if if I can afford it, yeah, I get another trading it in. Yeah. Yeah. Trading it in for something else and taking this dog to the shelter. Obviously this isn't working. I've tried two. I've tried two trainers. Right. Or if you're just trapped in the hellscape that is the American healthcare system and you keep trying to get answers from <laughs> doctor after doctor, you just, you just decide that you can live with whatever the hell <laughs> the stupid thing is. <laughs> Look, if you would Are just you, lose weight, right? You would just lose weight. That would, um, yeah. Speaking of Sarah's uh, personal experiences. Um, yes. So yes, damaging uh, their confidence in us is a problem. We want to avoid it whenever we can. And it can also push them towards the trainer that we are defining as not effective and is harmful. The trainer who will guarantee them 
Right. That if they leave the dog with them for two weeks, they will fix the behavior. I do think that we can kind of agree that guarantees are bad. Yes. And if they go to like two or three trainers and they're going to call a fourth one, uh, they're going to call the one that says guarantee on their website. And that's a problem. It's a problem for us. And of course they are. This is not a problem of the consumer. And don't even get me started on how irritating it is for us to blame the consumer on for this. This is not their fault. No. So, but finally, I, this is a soapbox for me to talk about the fact that positive reinforcement absolutely can be coercive. Yes. This is again where quadrant speak gets really tricky because when that's happening, there's an element, there's elements of negative reinforcement present. Mm-hmm. When you leverage appetitive stimuli that are not freely available, when you leverage things that the dog is desperate for, you are being coercive. Yes. If I don't feed you except for in training, and if you choose not to participate in the training, you don't eat, I am being grossly coercive. I cannot call myself someone who is leaning heavily on positive reinforcement because if the dog hasn't eaten for three days and I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a bowl of food for doing the thing I want it to do. And the thing I want it to do is something that it has chosen to simply not eat for the last three days instead of do. Right. Am I leaning on positive reinforcement? No, absolutely not. Am I holding welfare as a core tenant? No, I'm not, I'm not better than somebody who is going to put the slip collar on the dog and pull them across the floor. Right. Right. I I love, let's just keep going back to the slick floors. If I say, well, your, your dinner bowl happens to be on the slick floor, so you can not eat or you can walk on the slick floor. Am I better than the person that's dragging the dog across the floor on the slip collar? No, I'm not. And you have an excellent episode where you go into detail on this. And I will link, yeah, I will link that one. And I, I think I have um, a blog on it as well that I will get linked because it comes up a lot in sports because what we do to them in sports is first of all, we buy dogs who have really big feelings about their reinforcers, because if they have really big feelings about their reinforcers, then they are better sport partners for us. They will also really give everything they've got to the sports. It kind of tends to be who they are. And then if we don't provide them kind of ample, abundant access to, like I was saying before, I want their lives to be really good if they don't have dog agility, right. Then we are being inherently coercive. And I think it's just, it's really, really important for us to think about and consider. Yes. And, and all of these pieces that we're talking about in the nuances, I, I think there are some very good schools out there for dog trainers where they are learning good skills and good information. But my experience is that these schools aren't providing a full education. And that is that to understand all of these nuances and be able to recognize them, we need to understand where training started, where these methods came from, what was informing them, how they influence modern training methods, how they influence our, you know, the pet owners 
knowledge of training Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without that information, I think we're missing a lot. And I think that it's one of the reasons that things are also so contentious is because we have people, usually those who are, who are newer to this industry Mm -hmm. who don't come from that crossover background, like you and I did Mm -hmm. that, that are lacking the ability to communicate effectively because they don't have that knowledge. And neither of us are proposing to like have the answer because I think the school that we need is more of a trade school style two-year program that then goes into an apprenticeship kind of situation. It doesn't exist. It's not going to, I don't even think it's ever going to happen. I'm not saying it's not going to happen overnight. Like, I don't even know if it's ever going to happen or going to happen within my lifetime. There's a bigger and bigger split, honestly, happening towards like actually putting dog training into academia versus it also still being a trade. So I think that it kind of needs both things and that there could be two paths here. But essentially, like, know that if you go to through a dog training school of any kind, first of all, good job. I'm really yes. glad that you went to school. Also know that your school is your schooling's not complete there. And, yes. you know, your school, let's say you go to an R plus based training school. They're not going to teach you the history of dog training methods. And they're not going to teach you the Keeler method. They're not going to te- talk to you about the monks. And like, I don't want you to go do anything you learn from the monks personally. No, but I would love it if you knew who they were and knew what they did and knew what their effect on this industry was. Right. Because then you might have a more robust understanding of where your colleague or your client are coming from. If you actually understand the background and they are influencing modern methods. If you have engaged in NILIP and nothing in life is free protocol, which is recommended strongly by a lot of people who consider themselves force free. Yes. Know that that came from the monks of new ski. They just didn't call it that. Right. (laughs) And then it was trickled down and other people altered it and other people did things to it. But like knowing our history, it's that whole know your history. So you don't repeat it situation. It's important for us to know where we came from and Continuing to push yourself and continuing to learn and grow is very, very important, but without kind of a baseline understanding of things, I think that there are limits to where you can grow to. Absolutely. And, and I don't know if, if you have seen this, but I have seen a lot of newer trainers get involved and work towards a certain certification. I want to become a, and then they will list a certification. Mm. And then that certification becomes, is presented as highly skilled. And, and so whether or not this trainer has gone to a school or they have, you know, learned on their own and achieved this certification that, that, that is then presented as kind of the cream of the crop. Having had having achieved that certification, that, that certification was the bare minimum I should have known as a trainer. Mm. And, and much like, you know, getting that education and going to these schools and acknowledging that that is, that is a foundation 
not a completed education, I think right. is the same as the I have my certification. I hang it on the right. wall. I am now a dog trainer. Not so much. Yes. Not no. so much. Yeah. No, that certification is, this is, this is what you have achieved so far. Hmm. It is, this is, this is testing your knowledge up to this point, but, and, and you and I both have achieved a a certification that we're both very proud of. That was a, not an easy process. You know, it it really pushed the limits of our knowledge, but we have not reached that point that we are now certified in this. And so we're done. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, and it's you know, how boring would that be too? But, um, yeah. <laughs> speaking of somebody who just likes to change things every day. Um, yeah. So I think what we're, what we're trying to say is that a, f- a complete education doesn't exist right. yet. And, and so we need to acknowledge that we should acknowledge it and then move forward and truly certain educational backgrounds. If somebody has a certain, went to a certain school versus another school, I can have an assumption then about kind of their baseline knowledge. I don't, I can't make any assumption though about what they're actually doing actively in the field today. I have to talk to them now to, yes. to know that. Yeah. And that's true for all of us. And knowing that the education piece is one where we all need to kind of keep pushing and fighting for more and more and more, as well as you will get to a point where the best learning that you can get is from consulting with colleagues on real cases in real time. Oh my gosh. So learning from the cases and the dogs and talking to other people, it's not, I take a case now, I have my certification. I'm going to take it and I'm just going to do my best and we'll see. And I'll learn through trial and error. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying right. take the case, bring your colleagues in on the case, learn and learn and learn and discuss and grow. You know, I have so many people that I get to do that with. Yes. Also like build your cabinet of folks that can check your work. Like say, yeah, because I think this that puts you solidly. The dichotomy is people who are doing a good job and people who are not. Everyone I know who's doing a good job is constantly bringing in the cabinet to check their work. Right. You're right. bringing in the cabinet. I'm bringing in the cabinet. And if you're lucky, you can have cabinet members who aren't like you at all. If you keep doors open. You can have cabinet members who might have insight that you don't have. Right. One of my best cabinet members is a marine mammal trainer. There's no, right. first of all, there's, there's so much different about what she does versus what I do. They're not even, they're barely in the same realm of anything, but checking each other on these certain things is so fun and important. And, and like, again, if I close that door, if I say, well, you don't put a leash on your thing because it's a sea lion. Therefore, right. we don't have anything to talk about. Oh, how much do I lose then? Absolutely. And if we and if we close that cabinet to people who only do exactly what we do, 
and the way we you, do then it. Then you basically don't have a cabinet. You have an echo chamber. Exactly. Exactly. And how many times have you gone to a seminar? It doesn't even, any seminar of someone who doesn't do what you do exactly the way you do it. And maybe you look at that and say, well, that's not how I would do it. But this gives me an idea. Mm-hmm. Like this gives me an idea or ask yourself and why, Ooh, Yeah. why don't I do it that way and get really clear with yourself on it? Right. That's not so because, valuable too. Yeah. Not because it, I don't do it that way because a certain book or a certain speaker Right, right, said that I should do it this way instead. But having that understanding so we can answer those questions ourselves without. Right, or if I, if I watch somebody's training and it makes me uncomfortable in any way, I am going to lean into that discomfort and ask why. Mm-hmm. And if it is simply because of the other behaviors in this dog being affected, I don't like the way that she's holding her mouth. I don't like the way that her eyes look. I don't like the way, like, cool, that I know that and I can move forward. But if I'm not sure why, that's where things can get really interesting. I went to a seminar years ago, probably 12 or 13, maybe 15 years ago, in a time when I was extremely dogmatic and I was very uncomfortable with the seminar. I was really uncomfortable with what this person was presenting. And... I kind of closed myself up to it and steeled myself to the discomfort and sat my ass in the chair to get the CE credits and then moved on with my life. And I sometimes wish that I could be put back in that seminar today with the mind I have now to see what I actually think about it now. Yeah. Because not only do I think I would be less uncomfortable, but I would be able to be more curious And I would probably leave with a better understanding of both what she was trying to present and what I disagreed with. Right. And when we just close up and don't lean into that curiosity, and I'm not telling you to sit in a seminar where you see that dogs are being right, you know, treated inhumanely because I've been in that seminar too. Right. Like don't, don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this was very gray area stuff. This is a well-known person in the R plus training world. So this is a very gray area type of stuff going on that I had, I was very uncomfortable with and I'm still uncomfortable with a lot of it today, but I think I have a better understanding of it. And anyway, but my closing off in that weekend meant that all I did was dig in my heels right? rather than grow. There was no growth. There could have been growth without me agreeing with her. I could have still left firmly feeling that what she had done was not for me and not for my practice, but with growth behind it. And I will say that she also shut down a lot of that growth. Like she didn't, she wasn't really open to much to certain kinds of questions because she was ready for people to be uncomfortable with what she was doing too. So they, I mean, so it's, it's cyclical because she's been attacked for things that she's doing, she's right. ready to be attacked. So my, so I did ask one simple question that she took very poorly and, you know, was kind oh, of snotty with me back. Right. And like that shut it down. It didn't ask her anything else. Right. And it was a genuine question on my part, but she was ready. She 
read it as being attacking. So anyway, it, it circles back that this false dichotomy of those people and these people, yes. balanced versus force-free, whatever the hell you want to call it, pushes us away from any kind of agreed upon framework. It pushes us away from a shared baseline. And we need that baseline so that we can build standards for the things that we're doing. And if we're just standing on either sides of an, a made-up fence, we're not going to get there. And it is a made-up fence, which makes people uncomfortable, as I've been told <laughs> from part one. And it's because if you are, if part of your identity, I think, is is tied to one of these labels, me saying that that's a fake label, that's not going to feel good. So recognize that I understand that. But I think we'll end with just restating that the real dichotomy here is people who are doing a really good job and have a growth mindset and are doing good for their clients and they are valuing welfare and they're leaning on positive reinforcement as a core tenant of everything they do and people who are not. So anything else you'd like to add, my friend? I just hope that anyone who listens to this who is who is disagreeing strongly with what we say listens to it a couple more times and and really leans into what it is that's making them uncomfortable and asks if that's based on personal ethics personal or personal beliefs and if there's more if there's more they can learn to gain a better understanding of what we're saying. Yeah, I I think 10 years ago, I would have been uncomfortable with this conversation. Yeah, me too. And which just says this is this is why we need to be talking about these things. I agree. So thanks for talking to me about it for hours at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Lisa, remind everybody where they can find you. Uh, you can find me at serenitycanine.com. Um, you can also find me at shelterbehavior.com. And I am still on Facebook as fourpawsuniversity.com. Which is a really valuable Facebook page, everybody. So if you're still on Facebook with us old people who still use Facebook, <laughs> yes. go check it out. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.